Luke chapter 23, verses 26 to 56. Verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals, who were hanged, railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke chapter 23, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light fell, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. 
Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. This is God's word. I so very much appreciate all the folks who give of their time to serve us with music and sound and the choir that prepared that video. I think at the end of this uh, service or in the afternoon, we'll be sure to put up that video so that we can be ministered to it uh, as we watch it from home. I'm sure a lot of time was spent in it and we really want to thank the choir uh, for their ministry to us. Would you join me in prayer? Our gracious Father, we pray now that as we turn our attention to your word, that you would make us good hearers and that we would respond to you as you lead us by your spirit. We pray that in the way that we listen and the way that we respond to your word, we would honor Christ Jesus who gave his life for us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some have written or theorized of the cross in the writings of another faith that they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but it was made to appear so as to them, and they did not kill him for certain. This is a strange theory to hold to, that Jesus was not crucified, that he did not die. After all, as we've been studying all year long, Jerusalem's religious leaders had tried everything to deal with Jesus. The religious leaders had tolerated him, they'd undermined him, discredited him, even threatened him. But some problems don't go away until you kill them. They could live with the arrogance of the Romans and the incompetence of Herod the Galilean king. But when the prosperity of Jewish religion was threatened by this upstart from Nazareth, death was the only solution. So the plot was hatched, inciting the Romans against him, politicizing his teaching, stirring up a mob to call upon the most cruel of deaths, the Roman cross. We've studied this growing conflict for about a year and a half now in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, all for the last year and a half, that's all we've been doing. This is the story that we've been tracking. The story of the king who came, who was rejected, framed in his death, and finally murdered. And on Good Friday today, Christians all around the world do not just remember his death, but they remember his murder and his execution. Jesus did not go quietly into the good night. He was violently, cruelly, and unjustly killed. And last week, on Sunday, Pastor Eugene took us through the details of the most unjust of trials. Before the Sanhedrin, Jesus was asked if He was the Christ, the Son of God. Before Pilate, the governor, He was asked, Are you king of the Jews? Before Herod, He was asked to show signs and wonders, but throughout it all, our Lord remained silent. With no crime verified, Pilate then concluded 
that Jesus was a religious minority leader. And so he had him beaten up, teach him a lesson, and then he found the worst criminal he could find to be a substitute to release Jesus. That was his plan. But Pilate was shocked by the bloodlust of the people. They did not ask for him to be stoned or to be exiled, but they asked for the worst Roman punishment possible. Nailed to a cross and hung till death by asphyxiation. The worst of criminals died this way. So our text begins in Luke 23, verse 26, with Jesus being delivered over to their will to the cross. This is a one-point sermon. Uh, there is nothing else, just one point, that Jesus was innocent. And, and the structure of this sermon follows these points. Events that take place before 9 a.m., from 9 to 12, 12 to 3, and from 3 to nightfall. At the outset, we see the picture of Jesus' physical state early that morning. He had been flogged before the trial, scorched after, with wounds and flesh hanging from that Roman flagellum that whipped him, with a crown of thorns jammed onto his head. And Jesus was in no shape to carry that heavy cross. So Luke records that he was led and the Romans seized Simon of Cyrene, which is present-day Libya, to carry the patibulum or the heavy beam that Jesus had to be nailed to. Simon was coming in from the country. Likely he was a passing Jewish pilgrim who was here for the Passover feast. And they just grabbed him, a, a big and strong man who would be able to shoulder this load because Jesus could not. The beating had physically broken the carpenter from Nazareth. And picture that sight, this bloodied rabbi paraded on the road for all to see his shame. And many came out to see him, especially women who were mourning, lamenting for him. These devout women were part of a great crowd who had gathered. So many, it seemed like the whole of Jerusalem had woken up for this. In Luke 24, we read about how two disciples of Jesus describe the events of his death and they say that it was so well known that it seemed impossible that any visitor to Jerusalem could not have heard about the events that happened in these days. Luke 24 verse 18. Crucifixions got a lot of attention and people would come to be entertained by the latest spectacle of criminal paraded through the streets in Rome. But this was a crucifixion like none other. Some may have remembered the words of the prophet Zechariah describing how God would pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Zechariah 12, verses 10 and following. Well, today, if you visit Jerusalem and you go as a Christian pilgrim, they will bring you down that road, the Via Dolorosa, that way of sorrow, and they will bring you to the 14 stations where Jesus moved through and each station with an engagement with someone 
because of sorrow on that way. Almost certainly, Zechariah was on Jesus' mind as he heard these women wailing and he turns his head and the, and the procession comes to a halt. He speaks to the daughters of Jerusalem. He looks at them and he says, Do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Weep for your children. Well, what does this mean? Jesus points in verses 29 to 31, what will happen to Jerusalem in days to come? These will be days of difficulty where the women of Jerusalem will wish that they had no children. They will wish that they had never brought life into this world, preferring even death because of this coming suffering for Jerusalem. Well, Jesus has said similar things in Luke 19 when He first entered Jerusalem and wept over it, thinking about the things that were to come. And He uses this proverb that may seem a bit challenging for us to understand. This wood is green, and what will happen when the wood is dry? Well, there are at least two ways to read this. On one hand, it could mean that the Romans, if the Romans will not spare Jesus green wood, wood with moisture in it, they toss it into the fire anyway, and if they will not spare Jesus the green wood, who was not actually leading a revolution against the Romans, what will happen when Jerusalem really does rise up against Rome? That's one possibility. Another possibility, that when Jesus is no longer here to preach the gospel, how will God's wrath fall upon the city? If God did not spare His own Son, will He spare then Jerusalem? Well, whichever interpretation you take, the point is clear that Jesus, as He is going to the cross, warns of coming judgment for Jerusalem. In about 35 years, in 70 AD, Jewish-Roman tensions will rise to a head and the Roman Empire will launch a five-month siege against Jerusalem and reduce it to rubble. Thousands of Jews will be crucified and the Holy Temple itself will be ravaged. According to the historian Josephus, thousands of Jews were crucified and there were cases even of cannibalism as mothers ate their children. This painting by Francesco Hayez imagines the great tragedy and if you look carefully, you can actually see temple furniture. You can actually see the golden menorah, the lampstand being carried away and women hurled from the walls of the temple. Jesus is too weak to carry the cross, but He carries the burdens of Jerusalem in His heart. Have you ever had a friend like this where you go to the hospital and you, you want to comfort this friend, you want to show your support, you want to show your solidarity, and, and as you see your friend weakened physically, yet you see the strength they have, and you walk away comforted and blessed and strengthened by this person's uh, character, or like Jonah, bringing good news of judgment to Nineveh. Jesus brings judgment, warning to Jerusalem. But unlike Jonah, Jesus is a far better prophet. He has no resentment, no anger in his heart against those who have put him on this road. We see Jesus full of mercy and compassion. 
He could not bear His own cross physically, but surely He has borne our griefs and our sorrows. Even when we thought He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. What would you have done if you were on this road? Simon of Cyrene, standing between Jesus and the crowd of women, standing between them, would have heard this full exchange of mercy. And in a parallel text in Mark's Gospel, Mark tucks in this little detail in Mark 15, 21. They compelled the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and here's the detail, the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. Why does Mark do this? Well, Simon had surely gone home on that fateful day and told his wife and his sons, Alexander and Rufus, about this Jesus and this had changed their lives. In Romans 16, the Apostle Paul refers to Rufus as chosen in the Lord and thanks his mother who had cared for Paul. So this is evidence for us that this family later became a part of Jesus' followers and their family was actually known to the early church. What a testimony and what a thought that the one who bore the cross of Christ eventually came to see that Christ bore a heavier burden for him. Does anyone here feel that you are carrying a heavy burden for the Lord? Do you feel that you are unjustly suffering for His sake? If you are struggling under that load, perhaps it is a difficult relationship or a stressful assignment or a duty that feels it is too much to bear. Place that cross on your shoulder. Look at Jesus a few steps ahead of you. Follow Him. Mark 15, 25 tells us that it was the third hour or 9 a.m. where Jesus was crucified. Arriving outside of the city, Jesus is flanked in crucifixion by two criminals, one on his right, one on his left, reminding us that Jesus was in the company of lawbreakers. And according to Leviticus 24, verse 14, the accursed would be brought outside of the camp derided by the congregation. Perhaps you've seen the scenes from the movie Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson. It's quite accurate. And you know the account from years of Christian preaching how the Romans would strip bare someone who was to be crucified, stretch them out on that rough and splintered wood, and with strong hammers, pound iron through flesh, through bone, into wood. And the stink and the smell of the blood that would rise and fill that air, mingling with the sweat and the smell of dirt. No wonder the place was called Calvaria in Latin, meaning the skull. But in that air, Luke tells us, there was a different, sweeter fragrance. The aroma of mercy and compassion as we hear the words of Jesus praying to His Father. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus, do you not know what is going on here? Do you not know how much these 
people hate you? Do you not see how they opposed you? Who are these that Jesus intercedes for? At his feet we see them. As Luke borrows the word from the words from Psalm 22, verse 16, the ones who cast lots for his garments, dividing up his stolen possessions for themselves. Others from the crowd are there to stand and gawk, to point and stare at the spectacle. The rulers, the religious authorities who conspired, they are the ones who scoff at him and say, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Even one of the criminals next to Jesus joins in, railed at him for claiming he was the Christ, and that humiliating inscription in all the common languages of the day hangs above his head in his shame. This is the King of the Jews, a sound warning to all the Jews, especially those with rebellion on their minds. It is for these, these sinners that Jesus prays. The hymn writer Horatius Bonar helps us find our place in this story. And of that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throng I see, mocking the sufferer's groan. Yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. T'was I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Son of God. I joined the mockery. Well, the painful irony, of course, is that the Christ, God's chosen one, will save others precisely because He does not save Himself. His intercession puts into practice the teaching that Jesus has given His followers. Luke 6, verse 35. Love your enemies, and you will be sons of the Most High. To be clear, in this prayer, Jesus is not absolving these people of their crimes. He is saying that they do not know the significance of what they've done. They do not understand the weightiness, the eternal cosmic significance of their actions, murdering the Holy One of God. Well, for those of us who follow Christ, this is our model in the darkest of our moments. As Zach read just now from 1 Peter 2, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called Christians, that Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. Surely this is love in its purest form. Not reciprocating good for good or ill for ill, but good for ill. Christians must take this in daily. The truth that Jesus loved us when we were His enemies. 
how will this transform moments of our anger and bitterness when we feel shortchanged by life or ill-treated by others or when we are tempted in the heat of an argument to just give it to the other person? Friends, remember the cross when next we find ourselves in these moments of temptation. That's what happens when we are transformed by the cross. And Luke draws our attention to yet one more person who has been transformed by Jesus' mercy. There is another criminal, of course, next to Jesus, hearing the mockery of the first and rebukes him. And he says, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Seeing the response and character of Jesus, even against his enemies, this criminal picks up on at least three things. First, the fear of God, this reverence for God, our Maker, it often draws upon us when we are close to mortality, when we see our mortality, and suddenly we see things of eternal value much more clearly, and we sense the accountability for how we have lived and how we are living our lives. Uh, second, he sees that both criminals, his friend and himself, are deserving of their death sentence. Probably these men were associates of Barabbas, the insurrectionist who went free, and, he's, and he confesses that they deserve their punishment and there's no blame shifting, no deflecting, no self-justifying, just humble confession, taking responsibility for the deeds. And third, he is able to see that this Jesus is utterly different from any criminal or any sinner he's ever seen. He's even able to see that this Jesus is a king with a coming kingdom. This criminal, having observed Jesus in these hours past, heard his intercessions and his prayers, is able to see that the cross Jesus is nailed to is not his own. And so he cries out for mercy. Did this thief here? Jesus' gospel message in days past? Did he hear about this coming kingdom? Did he hear that Jesus preached repentance for the forgiveness of sins? We do not know. But Jesus knows his heart. And in these words, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. The Septuagint uses the word, the Greek word for paradise, that is the Garden of Eden a state of innocence where there is no sin. And, and what a hope for sinners as we approach life's end, that if we too cry out to Christ Jesus for mercy, we will be with Him in paradise. I love the wisdom of the Scottish preacher Thomas Guthrie, who speaks of this passage on the, uh, and relates it to deathbed conversions. And he explains it uh, this way, it cannot be too often or too loudly or too solemnly repeated that the Bible, which ranges over a period of 4,000 years, records but one instance of a deathbed conversion. And here's the key. One 
that none may despair, and but one that none may presume. Friends, let no one here put their hopes in deathbed conversions. If you have yet to respond to the fear of God that shows you your sin and rebellion against a holy creator who loved you, made you for himself, if you have yet to own and acknowledge your sin without blame shifting and excuses, if you have yet to cry out to Jesus for mercy, do not wait to the end of your life. This is the moment. This is the day. Respond to Him and cry out for mercy. And yet, if we are waiting for loved ones to respond, and many of us are, let the thief's testimony remind us not to despair. Between the sixth and the ninth hour on Good Friday, 12 to 3 p.m., darkness fills the sky, the sun's light failed. Luke here references the cosmic predictions of the prophet Amos in Amos 8 verses 9 to 10. And it should be said also that in the crucifixion account, for all the four gospel writers, none of them have actually given us the gory details of crucifixion. None. None have told us about the nails, about the experience, none of it. They, go, they just put it simply, and he was crucified. And why is that? Well, the reason is here. The physical pain that Jesus went through, the gory details were awful, but they were not the worst part. The worst part of Good Friday was the cosmic spiritual nature of the suffering that Jesus went through. And the sun's light, as it failed, shows us God turns His face away, abandons His Son. Even the most uneducated person would have been able to see that something was happening in the heavens as God looked upon this death and put all His wrath on that one person. From parallel texts, we know what Jesus says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Luke records also that in the Jerusalem temple, between the holy place and the most holy place, where a huge curtain would have kept the most holy place out of view, that, temp that temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, as if only God could have done, symbolizing that access was being opened up to those who were outside and could now come in. Jesus was being cast out, so that others could come in. Jesus was being cursed, so that others could be blessed. And at the ninth hour, Mark 15 tells us that Jesus cried out with that loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, quoting Psalm 31 verse 5, and he breathed his last. While the other Gospels give us more details of what Jesus said, Luke only gives us these words, the final prayer in the words of a psalm, a psalm that was used in traditional evening prayers before Jews went to sleep. Jesus' final words here are trust, confidence in God. 
see the strength and character of Jesus, who endured such violence and yet at his end was so full of grace and dignity. Standing nearby, the Roman centurion, a man who commanded at least a hundred soldiers, who had been hardened by battle and duty, he is cut to the heart. And like Simon of Cyrene, like the thief on the cross, and like every believer in Jesus Christ throughout history, this Roman centurion worships God and says, certainly this man was innocent. The stunned crowds who have come to see the blood spot realize they have seen something extraordinary and terrifying and earth-shattering, and they go home beating their breasts in mourning and grief. And the followers of Jesus standing by, distant, they have nothing to say. Their hearts are broken. Luke records that one of the Sanhedrin, a religious leader who did not approve of all that had been done, one who was looking for the kingdom of God, intervenes and he uses his influence with the Roman governor to obtain the lifeless body of Jesus and places him in his own tomb, a tomb of a rich man. Deuteronomy 21-23 required that a corpse be buried on the day of death. No time for wakes. Bundle him in spices so that as the body rots, it will be bearable. Finish the preparations because the, the Sabbath is coming. And so from three to nightfall, the disciples move quickly and they place him in that tomb. Well, you know that the story doesn't end here and you know that in three days, resurrection will follow. Uh, you know that the Father will raise Jesus from the dead, showing that He accepts the atoning work of Christ Jesus. You know this. And you know that because of the cross, there will be no more wrath for sinners. You know that if you've trusted in Jesus Christ and you are sitting here today, this is a wonderful event because it secures our forgiveness and our reconciliation to God. You know this. But friends, as I was reading this text again and again and preparing for this sermon, one thing stood out to me in the text that I had not seen before. And the one thing is this. Luke wants so much for us to see in this chapter. He wants so much for us to see that Jesus was innocent. Yes, it's true. All of the gospel implications that follow. Yes, it's true. But in this text, we are to feel the awfulness and the weight and the evil of the innocent one dying for those who are guilty. Haven't we already seen this? The women, as they weep, weep for the green wood untimely sent to the fire. The thief on the cross tells us that this Jesus had done nothing wrong. The Roman centurion says it all for us. Certainly this man was innocent. But unlike the innocent Abel, whose blood calls out from the ground for vengeance, we see that the blood of Jesus Christ, innocent, does not call out for vengeance but calls out for redemption. This blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It speaks a word of mercy. It speaks the word of the gospel. 
At the beginning of our service, Pastor Ian read to us from Leviticus 16, which describes Yom Kippur, the holiest day in Israel's worship, the Day of Atonement. And the centerpiece of that day is the slaughter of the innocent animal for atonement. Christ Jesus, our spotless lamb, our innocent sacrifice, the one who is without flaw or blemish, His blood speaks that better word. Hebrews 9 puts it this way, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Brothers and sisters, the innocence of Christ is what we must remind ourselves of as we read this text. Because His innocence and death on our behalf points to our guilt and what was done for our guilt. In these moments as we prepare to come around the table of the King, I invite you to pause with me. Join the daughters of Jerusalem. Join join Simon of Cyrene. Join the thief on the cross. Join the the Roman centurion. Look upon the innocence of the Lamb of God. As we take this sign of His body and blood in bread and cup, we're going to hear in a moment or two a hymn that calls us to remember calls us to remember the lamb that was slain, the body that was torn, the blood that was shed. And perhaps you wandered into this service today thinking it's a good time to come to church, soon we can sing, but not today. And you felt that maybe you were doing your religious duty. If you've not made your peace with God, or perhaps you've made your peace with God and, it doesn't, and it's been a long time since you've opened your heart to Him. Friends, I pray that in these moments you will pause, be still, let the rushing world go by. Make your peace with God since He made His peace with you. So let's spend a few moments in silent meditation as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper.